Thanks for making me feel like a, like a celebrity, Granel. It's pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> This is all going to be on the cutting room floor here. Hey, Jay, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Thanks a lot for having me, Granel. Congratulations are in order. Um, you've completed your film, The Great Postal Heist, and you recently uh, got a big award for it, right? Yeah, it was exciting to uh, get a, a Best Documentary Feature Award from uh, the festival that we premiered at earlier this past summer um, after the uh, pandemic hit. All, all the festivals became virtual festivals. Um, so we premiered it online at Workers Unite Film Festival. And yeah, it felt very appropriate to um, be able to kind of uh, introduce it to our fan base and the world there. We had a real great showing um, and we couldn't have expected that many people in a theater. So it was a really positive experience. And that was in May. Um, and then just a couple, like a week ago, they announced their award winners. And uh, yeah, it was really nice to get those laurels and to get the uh, best documentary awards. So our fans are excited. We we're excited to, to share that news with them. Oh, that's great. I'm glad it's getting recognition. Thanks. Can you give some background on the film for anybody watching uh, and let the listeners know also where they can see the film? Yeah, sure. Uh, the, it's a documentary feature film uh, that I began shooting 12 years ago in 08, 09. Wow. And it's uh, the, the launching off point is that my dad was a postal worker and um, I'm a filmmaker, and I just thought that the postal workplace was a rife grounds for a story to be told because um, I just knew from the stories growing up that I heard at the dinner table um, that it was this really contentious environment. And um, I thought, well, people would be surprised at a workplace that exists in every town in America, that so many of them uh, have this level of stress um, that you know boils over into people's lives, and um, and I had a real question like, what is going on? Why? It was a question for me, and I think that's you know where a lot of films start off, or any pieces of art is you know the the individual has a question that they want to ask, and so yeah, that was kind of the journey of of the making of the film. Um, so being, I had that personal connection, it started off just with, you know, interviewing my dad and then some mm -hmm. of the people that my dad knew and branching out from there, you know, finding out what other postal workers would be willing to talk to me and, you know, going on to postal film blogs to, and message boards to try and, you know, gather some diverse voices around the country and we quickly tapped into a network of people that wanted to tell their story. And then we quickly tapped into a couple um, of the key stories in the film um, that play mm -hmm. out um, about individuals, uh, letter carriers, uh, postal clerks, and people in management. Um, and people in the other executive areas of the Postal Service that were fighting against a really corrupt and abusive system. And so that's where it kind of became, you know, most interesting. And the heart of the story was told in these people's stories who were trying to fight for their own job or to get the truth told about a tragedy that happened in their workplace. 
Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the film kind of chronicles um, a couple of these stories. And in addition to that, it, it just kind of gives a, uh, a, a history over the past couple decades of a lot of the kind of political maneuverings around the Postal Service. And what is the post office? Is it a public thing? Is it a private thing? What, you know, what response? People have a lot of misconceptions about what it is, yet it's something that kind of touches everybody every day. You know, like like fish that swim in the water, you don't know that there's water around you. Well, you know, if we took away the post office, would we know, um, you know, would would only then be when we like realize that this network that connects a lot of people in a physical way um, was gone. And, you know, a lot of it has been under threat of being picked apart so much so that it would change. And, and that fight is still happening. So then, you know, the, the filmmaking journey also became about telling that story and the, you know, the unions that were fighting for a public postal service and a lot of the efforts that have been going into picking it off, privatizing it for profit. When you were going into this film, um, when you were starting pre-production on it, you said you had that initial question of just very simply, what is this craziness that's going on? Um, did you have any script that you wrote ahead of time or did you have any narrative arc that you had established or was it strictly um, finding these people and building the story from their experiences? Yeah, I had no script um, <laughs> and and no narrative arc, uh, except the only thing I had was just an inclination that um, that people were getting effed over at work and that you know, I wanted to tell a story about this injustice, but I didn't have really even a way to tell it. I just was a kid asking a lot of dumb questions of postal workers and people in that postal world in order to even determine what the story was. Um, and, you know, it it's um, I don't know if it's a backwards way of going into it, but I know it's definitely not what a lot of documentary filmmakers do. And it definitely made it. Um, a big, you know, thing to bite off because, you know, it's just like so much time in the editing room. There's so much stuff on the cutting room floor because you get taken off into tangents. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Early on, we, we found the stories that were were crucial, but it still didn't prevent me from, you know, allowing an interview to go on for two and a half hours, even if I realized that I was only going to be able to use 30 seconds of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But <clears throat> that workflow is nice because I think it makes the film more personal. Um, you have these these people that the story is centered around in their lives and their stories and the element of you and your father. Um, so it's this giant topic, but it's a very personal and, and human film as well. Thank you. Yeah, and, and it was really one thing that I did think going into it is that I didn't want to be in the movie and I didn't think, well, I guess I thought my dad's story needed to be in the movie. He was one of my first interviews and he does have a story that is similar to a lot of others that went postal or didn't go postal, but just experience abusive management on a daily basis at the post office. But, you know, I didn't feel like I needed to be in the movie, but that's where, you know, having a collaborator comes into play and, you know, a lot of people along the way kind of you know well what is your role in this and 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 it just was obvious that I needed to kind of have a voice in the film in order to um tell you know kind of lead lead the audience along and I was happy with how it came out you know 
I, I luckily had a, a great collaborator in Sheila Dvorak, and she was with me in the editing room. And those scenes that I'm more emphasized in, I would just walk away and say, yeah, go ahead. You know, you, you have a first pass <laughs> at this because uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't even know how to edit it. I like that. Though. I think it's nice to see who the narrator is and who's telling us this story. Thanks. Yeah, it definitely has a um, a lineage in the documentary tradition, and it just seemed to make logical sense in this one, as resistant as I was to it. Growing up, did you ever want to work in the post office? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I just, um, you know, I think that most of the postal workers I spoke with probably would have that same answer. Right. Yeah. But for my dad and for a lot of the people in there, it became, you know, even for people that had an education like my dad, who, you know, went to college and had a business degree and um, worked in labor relations for larger companies. Um, the economic uncertainty, you know, since the early 80s and on made the Postal Service um, a place where you could go and at least know that you were going to get a living wage you know, could pay your mortgage, could put your kids through college. And so it's it's amazing how many people are there behind the scenes with, you know, a lot more talent than they're able to use um, day in and day out. Talking about your childhood here a little bit, um, I also watched a clip of you in Ten Benny <laughs> as as a young actor. Um, was that is that you with the uh, the gold lighter? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, that was. Um, yeah, I guess, well, you know, I'd always been fascinated with films growing up. And so the opportunity when I was hanging out with a friend, we were like 13 or 14 years old. And he said, Hey, um, my mom went to the, you know, hairstylist today. And they were talking about how there was this, there's going to be this open audition in, in Montclair tomorrow. And, and they're just looking for, you know, people to be in a movie and you want to go. So I said, yeah, sure, let's go. That'll be fun. Um, <laughs> it'll be interesting. I'd never done any acting outside of uh, middle school play. I was King Midas. Uh, okay. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, you know, I did kind of think that it would be great to be in the movies, um, even though I ended up, you know, behind the camera. So we were there and I noticed on the casting line that I was getting like second glances from like the people that were in the, you know, involved in casting the movie. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I wonder uh, what's going on here. So I did an audition with my friend Nick and uh, left my headshot, which was like my school photo. And then right, okay. uh, got home and got a call like that afternoon immediately that they wanted me to uh, be in this movie because they. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. You know, not by, <laughs> you know, not having anything to do with my acting ability, but they thought that I looked enough like they were trying to cast for the younger version of the main character who was played by Adrian Brody. Um, in the film. And Adrian Brody was like little known then, but then he went on to like become, you know, an Oscar winner and all this. So they thought I looked like him or they they thought I at least looked enough like him that they uh, wanted to give me the part. So it was a it was a fun experience. I got to, you know, I got to learn how to smoke a cigarette. I got to make out with a girl. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was it was it was pretty funny. It was a pretty funny experience. Um, had you had any any like, dreams of working in as an actor or behind the camera before this point? Um, 
you know, as a, as a kid, I think I was always like, I was always performing, at least for the family, you know, and I always loved comedy. And so I kind of did a little bit, but, you know, as all like childhood dreams, like I never really pursued it or took it seriously. Um, you know, and even that was just kind of like, oh yeah, sure. I'll do this, but no pressure. Um, but yeah, after that experience, I did end up going for one or two other auditions and I didn't really feel the acting thing so much. So I kind of, I kind of stopped after that. Have you been in any other films since, uh, Ten Benny? I was in another independent film, uh, because I, uh, it was a summer in college. I was looking for work and I, there was a independent film being shot in a, in the town nearby. So I was in the camera department on that film, uh, and an actor didn't show up one day, so they needed somebody to play the role. But, you know, nobody will ever see me in that. I think I have the VHS of it. I was a detective. And since then, you know, I've been a, a little bit part in Friends movies. Uh, Sheila um, directed a, a really good um, short comedy, a uh, little family comedy called Vacation Bible Lemonade. And I played a, uh, a gruff laundromat owner in that. So it's few and far between, but I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very cool. I know that music is a huge part of your life also. Um, when did that interest uh, start and when did you start playing instruments? Um, I know you play guitar and drums. Um, and when did you start performing? Was that happening simultaneously at this time or did that come later? I started uh, playing drums when I was 14. And yeah, I always, always listened to music and loved music. As a kid, you know, my dad had the, you know, oldies radio in the car and, you know, my mom listened to classic rock. And um, and then I, I was, you know, 12, 13 when um, when Nirvana broke and I was and it kind of just changed my whole perception of like what music was. And so my friend picked up guitar and encouraged me to play drums because you know he needed a drummer and my parents were encouraging me to pick an instrument and I you know I loved the the bombastic uh Dave Grohl on drums in Nirvana mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I was like yeah sure I'll take some drum lessons and yeah didn't look back I, I practiced a lot and was in a high school band we did a lot of covers mostly we played some you know we, we played at a bunch of bars we were like a house band at some open jams and you know just learned the whole like classic rock catalog we just did Jimi hendrix and led zeppelin so yeah after i had the sticks for a while i fell in love with john bonham of zeppelin and tried to learn every every lick there and it just wow, kind of yeah. yeah became a, a real big part of my life since then were you actually on on tour with your band no we uh okay. yeah it was it was a high school like lark and we did the you know the youth center festivals and some other like small gigs and then you know when we got old enough not quite 21 but when we got to be 18 we could like play the bars in hoboken new jersey um mm -hmm. and then in college got into another band that you know did originals and then when we graduated we moved out to los angeles because it seemed like a fun thing to do. And we played a bunch of clubs, but again, none of us really had like a strong business, you know, mind or managing mind for like promoting the band. And, you know, there's just so much competition too. And so it was always just kind of a, a strong hobby of mine. And, and if I ever kind of landed in a band that I could tour with, I would have dropped everything. But 
you know, it wasn't really the fate of things, but it's always, it's still in my life and all that like city apartment living made it. So I had to put down the drums after a while. And so I decided to pick up guitar and, um, still been doing that. You have very practical uh, choices for how you got into instruments. Somebody needed a drummer, and then uh, you were in an apartment, so you learned guitar. So. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was at a, a house party one night, and people were just, like, passing the guitar around and singing all these, like, old songs from my youth and their youth. We were all, like, the same age, and they were, like, singing a bunch of 90s songs. And I was thinking, like, wow, it's amazing that all these people could just, like, grab a guitar and, like, you know, sing and play a bunch of chords. I should know how to do that. And it was, like, this inspiration for me to you know, kind of dive into it. So it's, it's been great. And, you know, now I, I play with uh, my wife, Sheila and, and her band and, you know, we do mostly all, all her originals and I play drums and we got a, a funky little outfit that, you know, plays some festivals in the summer and we do what we can record. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. That's really fun. Thanks. So you and I both went to NYU. We're both graduates of uh, film school. Yeah. So when did you start getting interested in film during this time? What made you decide to apply to film school? Well, yeah, I I had gotten a video camera when I was in high school, um, and I liked to make silly, stupid home movies, and um, but I really didn't even think I was going to pursue it as a career. And so when I started college at NYU, I was a communications major. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I didn't even apply to the film school. Um, and as it, I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I still think it, that it's crazy to imagine that people will decide what they're going to do for the rest of their lives, you know, yeah. between the summer of high school and college or, you know, <laughs> in that senior year of high school. I know a lot of people that did know, like they wanted to be a lawyer from the time they were, you know, eight years old and they pursued that and they became that. But for me, even going into college, I just picked communications I don't even know why. It seemed like it would ha it would offer a broad range of career options. So, you know, starting out in that field, it was a lot of, um, it was a real eye-opener, you know. I read a lot of, like, you know, mass media theory and, you know, basically how the media works to, as a propaganda agent to, you know, um, fulfill the ends of whatever powers that be happen to be running a society, whether it's, you know, a communist society or a capitalist society, and then where the corporate, where the media is like corporately owned. And mm -hmm. ultimately, it was just kind of like, wow, this is really interesting, but what am I going to do with this information? You know, it didn't seem practical in any way. And you could go into like journalism or something, but it just made journalism seem kind of um, like an uphill battle of trying to tell a true story. Uh, so I kind of thought on it for a long time, like, what am I going to do? And, um, you know, talking to some friends will, had kind of encouraged me to try out for the film school, um, mm -hmm. because it was always an interest of mine. And so I did, and I didn't get in the first time I tried. I, I put together some experimental thing on that video camera that I had since like early on in high school. And it didn't, it didn't happen. And then, so the second, you know, that next semester I was like, well, I'm really bummed out in this communications program. And like, I don't want to finish off my, so I was, I was in sophomore year at this point and I like mm -hmm. took my time and I wrote a script. I don't know that it was any good. Maybe it was just like the persistence. Okay. This guy is trying again. So let's let, let's open the door for him. And I got in, um, 
and it was, uh, yeah, it was great. I, I'm so glad that, that my college career took that turn and I got to spend my last two years at NYU in Tisch. Yeah, it's interesting also, like you said, those first two years you were doing like, you know, mass media theory and all this kind of stuff, um, which I think is something that's lacking from the Tisch program in many ways, uh, because you're so focused on filmmaking and film production that sometimes you don't have uh, the context, the context uh, behind what's going on. So I think it's it's pretty cool in a way that you had those two years to study that, that other stuff before specifying in the film school. Yeah, it was cool. I, 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 I did really enjoy getting that education and I, I still took some of those classes when I had electives uh, after I got into the film program because I wanted to like finish it off as a, as a minor. And so, um, yeah, I had a lot of great professors um, you know, read a lot of McLuhan and Neil Postman. He was the big guy mm-hmm, at NYU. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, it was a cool perspective and it, it kind of, um, I guess, you know, I, I'd like it to inform more of my work, but I, I see how it kind of has informed the great postal heist because, you know, a lot of that film is about how the story that the media is giving you is just a bunch of, you know, BS and it's simplistic and it's, you know, being produced for you know the gains of a few people um so that was cool but yeah tish was great you know i i loved um i loved my time there i loved how trial by fire it was it was definitely intimidating going into it because there were those kids that i felt had you know a camera in their hand since they were young and i didn't know what an f-stop was and i was you know in those classes just like totally out of my depth i felt the fact that they just like give you a camera and are like go make these films you just kind of have to you know you have to do it you got to learn yeah exactly um when you were in tish did you have any specific focus within the film program no you know, I think because I had a shorter amount of time to do as much of it as possible, I, um, you know, I obviously started out with sight and sound. And uh, as, as you know, that's that's a real crash course in mm-hmm. yep. making as many films as you can in a semester. And it was a great education because, you know, you're crewed up with, you know, f- three other people. So you make your four films, you make all of their four films, and you're making like 16, 20 films basically, either as the director or as a crew person in a couple months. So, right. And, you know, just taking those language of film, um, those like broader classes where you're watching and you're learning how to read a film like a book, um, I, you know, I just loved kind of that general and broad way to take that mindset into any film, you know, a comedy or like an art film. Um, and I was glad that I had, that there was a lot of like unpretentiousness about some of the films that they would show, you know, like Wayne's mm-hmm. world and stuff I watched in, in one of the classes <laughs> and I had seen Wayne's world plenty as a kid, but never in the way that I saw it when, you know, I was watching it in film class and saw all the, you know, film tricks that were used there and just how, um, how you can bring a lot of the craft to to any genre. Um, Definitely, and some some of those you know mainstream, seemingly simplistic films are great examples of craft, just because they they are made so perfectly, uh, tech, you know, on the tech side, and then the story too. It's a lot of them are formulaic, but you can really see the template of uh, you know a good script, a well written, uh, co- coherent script. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
Um, and you know, in terms of like focus, I, I still was always into comedy. You know, I really, I would have been so happy graduating film school and going to write for the daily show. Um, so I took those (laughs) classes. I took the comedy writing class and then the, the other comedy writing class and, um, you know, tried to, you know, write all like the spec scripts for the sitcoms and whatnot. I, I enjoyed that. Um, but you know, it, that's not, that's not what ended up happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. On the flip side, it seems like, uh, your films, you've delved into this, uh, much, uh, darker side of life. I know <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how that works out after graduation. Is that when you moved to LA? Yeah. You know, it was, um, September 11th, uh, was the semester that was my last semester, September 11th, 2001. And oh, wow. so it, it was uh, not a good time to be in the city, you know. It was it was really that was that that had a big impact, you know. And you know, not only like personally, emotionally living in the city when that happened and watching it happen, um, but then it seemed like the um, the film economy was was in a in a drag in a state of drag in the city there and a lot of like production companies had closed down um so it seemed like the opportunities weren't really as abundant as they might have been um b- wow, before yeah. that and you know outside of that I'd always just kind of been enamored with Los Angeles and had never been there and I was in a band and we you know the two of the band members were music majors one of the um the lead singer was uh another film guy and you know everybody wanted to move to LA it was it was a really easy decision to make um you know graduating with a film degree what better place could I possibly go um and then you know outside of that just like moving in with the band and the you know getting good weather all the time and enjoying the uh the the good LA vibes for for a while felt like a, a good decision to make so when you got to LA, were you using your film degree at all, or were you doing mostly music at this time? Music, yeah, no, like it never paid the bills. So we were just we just you know practiced in our garage and we played around. But um, it was actually slow going before I got any job in in media or TV. Um, so I was temping. You know, I had started like at some uh, temp agency and I was like doing data entry for a while. And it was it was kind of depressing, to tell you the truth. And, yeah, yeah. you know, just thinking like, oh, when is it when am I going to get my first like because I would I crewed I, I would crew. Um, there was a, no lack of uh, films that wanted free labor, um, you know, just like in the city when I was working um, and there was no lack of um, TV shows that wanted free labor. So, you know, I got to intern at Late Night with Conan O'Brien and it was a great experience. But that show and a lot of the shows couldn't run without all the free labor that um you know takes up a large percentage of their um their staff uh so i did i did crew um and that was cool i enjoyed it but i also kind of um was a little turned off by the hours and the egos on film sets and i just kind of felt a little bit like well if you're not one of those principles, then you're going to be getting shit on a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess maybe I had too much of an ego to deal with it or, or whatever. But, uh, 
you know, ever since, you know, sight and sound film at NYU, I, I had fallen in love with the, the process of editing. So I, I knew that I wanted to work in editing and I, you know, I felt like that would kind of pro- also provide a better, um, better day-to-day life, just kind of more stable hours and a better opportunity to be creative too. So, um, you know, after, you know, spending my time on a couple film sets and temping, I landed a job as a production assistant at a, uh, a vendor that did TV ads for Disney. And I stayed there for a while and kind of worked my way up to become a, a finishing editor for, for Disney television ads and trailers. And oh, wow. yeah, <laughs> so that was a, so mm-hmm. what kind of, what kind of projects are you working on for Disney there? It was all pretty much uh, their biggest client was was Disney home video. Okay. So it was all like the packaging of um, of of spot of television spots for things that were coming out on Disney home video releases of old classics like The Lion King and Aladdin and the Disney princess stories. And then we also like authored DVDs and, you know, built the, the DVD games and the bonus features and things like that. Oh, so, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was all right. You know, it was it was a great experience because I got to be a production manager and like run the the um, the production assistant kind of mayhem of like delivering tapes back and forth to Disney, quality control, um, doing all the transcripts for all of the TV spots. I got to kind of see the hub of how that place operated, and when I kind of burnt out of that, I got to be a a producer and write some of the scripts for the TV spots. Cause once you're there for a while and you see the language and the formula, you could kind of figure it out. Um, and then, you know, I got to, you know, they put me through, through avid trainings, you know, I'd had it at NYU, but, but it was good to be able to get, get a refresher on that and work as an editor. Um, and so, you know, again, it was, I knew that it would be, it would take a while before I could work my way up to like being the offline editor of Disney's spots and trailers. And it was, you know, it wasn't what I wanted to do. I was really glad to finally be in the, in the, in the business, but, um, also eager to, uh, see what other jobs were out there. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like a good first step, but, uh, not the ultimate destination. Yeah. <laughs> um, when did you start working on the film playground? Cause I know you told me that was kind of what transitioned you into the editing world the editing side of things yeah well uh you know even from the the first job at um it was called 305 creative that was the place where we did the disney spots um from there i i the next job was an editorial job in reality television um i was in like reality tv casting um and then you know worked um behind the scenes in some uh editorial environments for fox reality shows uh, mm-hmm. and you know, after the trailers, after the reality shows, um, there was one job that ended. It was like, you know, it's just kind of how TV works. It's like you work on something for a while and the show ends and then you're looking for the next thing. And so I knew that I didn't want to like start up again when the next show was coming up, uh, at the reality company. Mm-hmm. So I answered a Craigslist ad for, um, an assistant editor on a documentary. Um, you know, I'd always been into documentary film. And, you know, I got the job and it was it was a real great learning experience and kind of, yeah, definitely changed my whole trajectory and, uh, you know, gave me the experience to at least think that I could make my own and kind of take that take that on. And this is when you're still in L.A.? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was there for eight years and about, I guess, 
four years in was when I when I got the job at um, on Playground Project, and that was um, a film by a director named Libby Spears, and she had gone to Indonesia after the tsunami um, in the early 2000s. I don't remember the year that that happened. And she, you know, is a documentary filmmaker, so wanted to film the fallout of that and had discovered that there were all these, this human trafficking was going on, like the sex trafficking mm-hmm. was going on there. And when she came back to the States to, you know, to, you know, explore that topic more, she found out, you know, she had talked to a couple people in the FBI and other law enforcement agencies that you don't really have to look any further than America to find it, in the U.S. to find it. And so that was what that film was about, the, the sex trafficking in the U.S. Um, so it was a heavy topic. And, you know, I was in the editing room just kind of watching all that footage come in and logging it and, um, you know, making selects reels and, um, yeah, just kind of living with it for maybe two years I was on that project. It was a very long and protracted, you know, when I think about how long Great Postal Heist was, it it, it was it was quick. But uh, mm-hmm, yeah, right. I just kind of, yeah, it makes you realize how long documentaries take. And that one was another one that had tons of footage. It's such a, a dark film. Um, and I imagine that it could really warp your, uh, your you know, your outlook. Um, how did, you know, how did you, you deal with that for a year or two? Um, editing all that footage. Um, yeah, it was definitely an underbelly of society that I wasn't aware of that was, you know, even, you know, it, it was very horrific, more horrific than things that you see on in, in the news, even if you're following like social injustices or, you know, war. Like this was a really, you know, dark ring that was taking place in, you know, in Dallas and Portland and Atlanta and, you know, a lot of gangs that were, you know, kidnapping kids or it was a lot of runaway kids and, you know, getting kids hooked on drugs and, you know, basically using them for this underground business of, you know, prostitution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it, it was dark, but, it, you know, I think part of it was like, I felt like finally I'm making something that is, you know, meaningful, you know, to be able to shine a light on this dark thing feels a lot better than all the work that I had done up until then. So that part of it was heartening and and probably, you know, got me through the topic, you know, but also you have to always kind of keep a sense of humor, even if it's a dark sense of humor and, you know, the director lived with it a lot too. And the editor and the other people that were in there, you know, you you would make you just kind of have to find the humor in everything even mm-hmm, you, you know even if it's not you know fit for public consumption it almost seems necessary to find your sanity through that dark humor um yeah you have to find a way to to get through it if this is your your day-to-day job yeah yeah and and it was you know it was good footage where a lot of people were like telling their story. So it really felt like it was a good opportunity for good storytelling. So you just keep your eye on that prize of like, how do you best serve all this footage and all these people that are telling you their stories? Um, yeah. yeah. And like you said, you're working on a project that hopefully will make a change for the better. So you're putting in uh, work. It's you know a hard topic, but it's, it's for a good cause. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I was, I was just really, 
excited to finally like be in the editing room of documentary. And I, I worked closely with um, the first editor on that film, a guy by the name of Bill Hoagsey, who, you know, by then had a long career in in uh, Hollywood as an editor and um and in documentary, he he edited uh, Hoop Dreams. So he, you oh, know, wow. yeah, he so he edited a couple movies for Steve James, and you know, won an Academy Award, and had a really awesome perspective, and took to me, and you know, wanted me to drive, you know, <laughs> to, to run, you know, while he was um, editing, he wanted me to like push the button. So I got to learn a lot, and it was um, it was a really cool learning experience. Uh, yeah, yeah. it's a great opportunity to get to work with somebody so closely like that. Definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, like anything, these, a lot of films get, can, can be like power struggles. Um, so he ended up taking, taking a leave and another editor had come on. And at that point I was kind of a little burned out on the, on the film cause it had seemed like it was taking a really long time. And I think, you know, the director knew it. Um, so, um, I went, I went a separate way. But got called back in a couple times to to still like polish some polish some edits and um, it was a great experience all in all. Yeah, yeah. In in line of this uh, kind of dark topic films and everything, the the next film that I see you worked on is Me America. Yeah, yeah. So you know, after eight years in Los Angeles, you know, I, I'm a procrastinator. I would have probably still been out there had. Um, had been left to my own devices, but, uh, you know, fate took me back East, um, (laughs) closer to my family to, to raise my family, to start a family out here. Um, and so that was like, kind of the fear was like, am I going to be able to, you know, start a career? And now I'm living up in the country, um, Mm -hmm. you know, hour and a half North of Manhattan. But, uh, I was able to find there, there's, there's film up here and there's, you know, TV, there's stuff going on up here. And, uh, so, so this was a film, Me America, was a film that was shot in Newburgh, mm-hmm. which is a couple exits up the thruway from Manhattan. And it's a, a gritty place with a long history and, um, you know, a lot of poverty and crime. And so this this was a crime drama that was filmed there. And I just got on that film as a... Um, as like an assistant, I was in the camera crew. I was basically like an assistant editor that was going to log footage. Mm-hmm. Um, but the director knew that I was an editor cause you know, I was, uh, you know, never shy about saying it, you know, whenever I was, ha- had an opportunity to work with any crew. Right. Yeah. And so he, he was eager to see his dailies cut into scenes. So I got to start to make rough cuts while I was, um, you know, just working as an assistant editor and, um, you know, he liked what he saw, we started compiling some scenes and um, yeah, that turned into another long, long process of editing. Um, but it was a really great experience because from the second I started seeing the footage that, you know, the cinematographer had shot, the acting in the film, I was like, wow, what I would give to get my hands on this footage. It was really awesome. Can you summarize the film? Well, yeah, the film um, is about a detective who is trying to solve a crime where um, these migrant laborers um, get killed in a warehouse. So, uh, you know, the film starts out with this kind of horrific crime that is pulled from the headlines. You know, this this has happened. Oh, I didn't realize it was it's based on a real crime. Yeah. Yeah. And it's you know, it's 
I don't know how specifically that ties into like one specific crime, but it has um, it has happened where like migrant laborers have been pulled off and kidnapped and beaten. Right. Um, And so, you know, this was a dramatic telling of that um, and uh, felt like a really timely story. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So it's this detective dealing with basically trying to uncover in what is this fictional it was shot in Newburgh, but it's a fictionalized small town um and how the kind of tr- solving of this crime opens up a lot of like this pandora's box of this detective's history of hate crime in his own life and the people that perpetrated it and how he is able to kind of solve this crime while digging into his own past and the kind of dark underbelly of the the city that he grew up in um so yeah it's it's just kind of a personal drama um and a mm-hmm. crime drama in that yeah how much play did, did this film get when it was released it was a short theater run um and then hbo picked it up in 2016 so that was a big boon for for the film it was on uh hbo for for a while i think <clears throat> more than a year maybe a couple of years and now it's gotten some international distribution and I know mm. that the director is still, um, you know, working on different distribution deals for it yeah, yeah. Um, because it's it's a topic that is still relevant. I mean, it, it's definitely not going away. Um, right. So it was nice. It was nice to be able to point my family to HBO and say, hey, go watch this movie I cut. Definitely. And it was nice to see your name in the credits at the end. Yeah. <laughs> Impressive. It was nice to type them in. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and I know you said there was some like issues you had with the film, things you didn't love about it. Um, but overall, I thought it, it was good. I mean, I thought it was very suspenseful and I thought the script was well written. Yeah. You know, the I, I really had a, a strong affinity for the movie and the editorial process was was challenging. And so... You know, when I look at the film now, <clears throat> it's different than the film that was shot. And, you know, there Robert Fontaine had had a vision. He's the, you know, the force behind this film. And it was mm-hmm. it was kind of it was really um, cool to work on a film that for whatever um, for whatever flaws it has, um, he definitely had a clear vision and was and was willing to want you know argued for it in the editing room on set and it was a battle any independent film is a battle when you're dealing with like really short budgets um you know people who aren't getting paid hollywood rates and you know he he went through a couple of crews actually um but editorially the film was um, our first cut was like three hours. So that was my job. Go into the uh, editing room and I just wanted to cut the whole thing. Just see what what, what it yeah. would look like all laid out at a pace that felt correct for the film. And the pace that really felt correct as we were editing it, editing the dailies was kind of a more deliberate pace. It wasn't a fast paced movie. You know, he, he um, definitely had seen this as a as a character study. Um, right. And so, you know, the first cut was three hours long. So what do you do with that? And it was really challenging to finally get it to where it is now. Um, it's, I think, a little under two hours now. And it took a year or more. It took about a year and a half to get there on and off, like a strong, solid first six, eight months, 12 months, and then back in the editing room here and there 
for for the rest of it. That's the hardest part of editing. Usually, is when you do find that pace and that rhythm, and then it's just you know you find you kind of make the perfect film, but it's you know two and a half hours, three hours, um, and then scaling it back to something that you know is presentable. Um, I think that cutting out that extra hour is always one of the toughest parts. Yeah, and it's like a question of like, how, what is the focus? Um, right. And do we lose the focus when we have too many, you know, tangents? And I, I think he had a great way of trying to make the the city of the film a character. And so he had all these, you know, kind of like a Robert Altman kind of quality to um, being with, you know, these other sort of peripheral characters, if you're thinking of it in a Hollywood movie sense, for a while and kind of seeing their story develop and how they eventually play into the to the main character but you know because of a lot of the you know because of a lot of the ways that it was shot it was shot a little long um we had to like cut out whole characters and whole like plot lines and storylines and so you know the director obviously is going to take time to come to those compromises uh Mm -hmm. you know especially feeling so strongly about it um and you know Robert's the he's the the main actor in the film, the writer and the director. Um, so it was it was uh, you know and and also you know he's an editor, so he was there um, alongside me doing a lot of the edit. So it was it was a it was a good process for me because you realize if you have an idea, if you have a decision, you you got to you got to sell it. You got to present it as good as you possibly can. And it's got to work because ultimately if you're an editor and there's another director, you know, that's, that's a good thing. Like a director has to make the final call. They have to like love the movie. They have to love, love, you know, what they're, there's like the captain of the ship. They have to make that final decision. Yeah, definitely. So it was a good back and forth. Um, and ultimately I think we, you know, found a good balance and focused on the heart of the movie, which is the relationship between like the main character and this kind of childhood friend become rival. Um, that's played by uh, Michael Brainerd, who I thought he did a really amazing job in the film, the the villain of the film. So it was it was a pleasure editing it, and you know I'm 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 glad with how it turned out, but it was it was a struggle to to get to that point for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, just, you know, that back and forth, it's such a valuable lesson to learn. Yeah. Um, now, during this time, are you also working on The Great Postal Heist simultaneously? Yes. And, yeah, so The the Great Postal Heist has been, like, I started filming in 2008 when I was young. And, like, like I talked about, like, TV and film, you know, you start on a project and then you that project ends. And when you're, like, when you don't have kids and you don't have, like, responsibilities, you can take a month or two with that middle period in between jobs and like work on your passion project. So much of the shooting of, of great postal heist was done. Um, 08 to 2012. Um, and then I still, you know, when, when I was editing me America, it was pretty much on hold because, you know, it was just an all encompassing task a lot of long days. Um, yeah. But, you know, always found time in between to to work on it. We had a a fundraising event, a fundraising push um, for Great Postal Heist um, that, you know, we traveled for and we uh, we edited a trailer for. So there was always a candle like under it the whole time. Um, But but it definitely kind of ebbed and flowed between 
having really intense time to work on it and then just being totally wrapped up in life or another job. Um, and that was, yeah, definitely one time where it was pretty much all that the whole time because I wanted it so bad, you know, I wanted to cut a feature film and, you know, I still, it's kind of why I started making the great postal heist because I, um, I wanted a, uh, a film, uh, I wanted to edit a feature film and to say, Hey, you know, I could use it as a, as, as our editor's reel. It was kind of yeah, a, right. a crazy way to go into like making a documentary, but you know, I still love that craft. And, um, so for, you know, being on me America, I, I, uh, it was a it was a big focus for those two years. Yeah, yeah and also you, the crazy way to, to make a documentary is that it makes total sense. You want a, you want a credit as an editor? Yeah. Well, direct direct a film and then you can edit it. Exactly. I can give myself a job. <laughs> there were many times where I wanted to give somebody else the job, but nobody would take it. <laughs> yeah. For free. Um, so just yeah, for free, right? Um, so just also to get the the geography straight here, were you were you still in L.A. when you started Great Postal Heist? Yeah. I was in L.A. in 08. I, I moved there in uh, 2002, at the beginning of 2002, and I was there until May of 2010. Okay. So are you coming back east for the interviews with your dad and all that? Yeah. You know, it was like Christmas break and stuff. I would gotcha. live in L.A. I would come back east at least once a year, sometimes twice a year. Okay. So that's when I would uh, line up my dad for an interview or his old boss. What ultimately brought you back east? Uh, well, I met Sheila. Um, at, at our at our job, uh, working on uh, at Rocket Science Laboratories, which was a production company that made Trading Spouses and a number of other schlocky Fox reality television, yeah. <laughs> and we were both kind of like, "What are we doing?" Um, and uh, you know, Sheila and I hit it off, and Sheila is from Ithaca, New York. Okay, mm-hmm. and you know, was not enamored with LA from the get go, and wanted to move back. And I, I kept her out there for a couple of years, but you know, ultimately, we we didn't want to start a family away from our family. And you know, her family's upstate New York, my family's from New Jersey, so we uh, we packed up the the Corolla and uh, drove back. In in 2010, tried to see as much of the country as we could in in that short two weeks. Oh, that's awesome! I'm sure that was a great two weeks. Yeah, it was wild. You know, we wanted to extend it, but um, a family emergency kind of pulled us back uh, quick quicker than we wanted to. But you know, we we saw uh, Yosemite and Grand Canyon and a couple other big parks in Colorado and Arizona. And yeah, we packed it in. It was really awesome. It makes me want to do it again as soon as I possibly can. Now, Sheila is the producer on this film. Um, Can you talk about the different roles that you both played as producer and director? And also, did you get started on the film together, or or were you already working on it before Sheila came in? No, I didn't start to work on it until until a couple years after I met Sheila. Uh, Okay. Yeah, so, you know, because I met her at the reality company, and then, you know, we both kind of jumped ship from there, and I had gotten that playground job, um, so... It was a couple years later. Um, so it's funny. Yeah, when I dove into um, I want to make a feature length. I, it wasn't even I want to make a feature length documentary. I want to like, you know, explore a subject for a documentary film. Um, Sheila has is, is a really great filmmaker. Uh, she made a lot of films in college and she was interested. She definitely wanted to explore the topic. She's definitely also um, a social justice warrior. So, you know, to to make a film about something that 
was exploring, you know, rights in the workplace, and um, she was interested in, in, you know, coming along on that journey. Um, and you know, as far as like our different roles, you know, obviously the the impetus for the story was a personal story of mine, um, and so it was definitely a passion project of mine that took more uh, dedication than anyone who was at all peripherally involved could have put in, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's amazing that documentary films get made that take this long, but they do. And usually it's because there's like somebody who's, you know, obsessed in a captain Ahab type of way about, you know, finally finishing it. So, you know, Sheila's role was really just being not me and a great filmmaker and not me, you know, having perspective, being in the interviews and, you know, she's got a great memory. So being in the editing room, uh, oh, didn't this person say that? You know, a lot of the film is about trying to have these disparate people tell the same story. And so I'm trying to, you know, build scenes um, around a certain topic. And we may have had an interview in 2014 and an interview in 2008. And so to keep all that in my head, I mean, obviously we had transcripts, but even to start to dig through transcripts, is, um, you know, an exercise in futility if you don't have a good memory about what happened. So Mm -hmm. Sheila would call things up all the time like, oh, didn't uh, Melissa say that in our interview when we interviewed her in Philadelphia? And, you know, lo and behold, I'd go search in the finder and I'd come up with our with our transcript. And yeah, um, you know, and, and so so that was a big that was a big help. She was on all the interviews, running sound and, you know, checking the, you know, occasionally running video and, you know, operating the camera. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember one anecdote that she told after the Rosendale screening, um, you, you know, she and you were doing a, a Q&A and uh, Sheila said there was one interview that was going on for like three hours and she was pregnant at the time. <laughs> and uh, after like three hours, finally she like yelled out and was like, this has to stop or something because she knew you would just keep rolling for, you know, all day. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. God bless Sheila. You know, she <laughs> she uh, she's got so much patience for for being involved in the film and just being that person who like any artist who's totally, you know, fraught with is are they going to finish this film is it going to get done and and also like there were these news cycles that we would miss so i always felt this urgency that like oh man i'm missing the story there was angst there was total angst and and she mm-hmm. she was that person who was able to be like no this is worthwhile like as much as i tortured her with um you know being with somebody that was making a documentary film for 10 years, she, I wouldn't have made it without her encouragement throughout. It wouldn't have happened Mm -hmm. because she believed in the movie and to have somebody else believe in the movie makes all the difference in the world, you know, because if it was just me believing in the movie, I would have probably questioned it a long time ago and been like, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I keep going. Um, So, you know, that was huge. Definitely. And just, it sounds like, like her perspective on it also she sometimes was able to see um, she didn't have her her head in the sand where as maybe you did yeah because um, it's you know your idea from the get-go and everything and you're kind of obsessed with it um, so just to have somebody there to say look this part is good this isn't and to give you some perspective in that way so you're not just shooting 24 hours and uh, 
going crazy with it. Right, right. And how many weeks I spent on the on the scene about EEO law. And, uh, you know, you need somebody in the editing room to say, you know, as much as you want this lawyer's interview in the film, I think that you might be, uh, you might have to cut it. You might have to lose it. What is that? What is the EEO law? Equal employment opportunity law. It's, oh, okay. Uh, you know, basically, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's actually, <laughs> I'll bore you. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> it's interesting because I, I I did have a really interesting story about a whistleblower who worked for the USPS, um, who and this is the scene about how you know there's a, there's a real irony in that if something is happening to you at work, you have to prove that you are in a um, that you're being discriminated against, and so you have to prove that you're in some class that you're a woman or that you um, are a person of color or, 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 you know, you can't just be, you know, somebody whose manager is targeting them for a reason that you can't kind of point to in an identity type of way. And so, and so that's where like the EEO law comes in, comes into play is that you have to kind of, um, so it was interesting, um, you know, behind the scenes, we had we had just kind of gone down rabbit holes of, of, you know, exploring a lot of different stories and the injustices behind them. And it, and it almost gets into like this, you know, Franz Kafka, like the trial, like, you know, you we could get lost in like in all the things that are burying these postal workers and a lot of like federal workers that are just trying to fight their cases and, you know, not see the forest for the trees. So when I'm trying to like track that down in an editing room, it's nice to have a Sheila by my side saying, I think we're going to have to drop this one. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then there's all the logistical stuff throughout that she was really good at, like helping build the website and all the outreach. I mean, she's just so much better of a people person than me. So she was able to, you know, really help us drum up a lot of, um, you know, just support from people, um, postal workers and, you know, get us, you know, some articles written. And, you know, so there's a lot, there's just a lot that has to be done in making a movie. Yeah. That's awesome that, you know, she would handle all of that side. And when I look at your film on Google or whatever, I see article after article. So it definitely has had, you know, outreach. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, um, yeah, it's it's been uh, it's it's been a ride. The editing on this film must have taken years, I imagine. Um, it's a, a dense story, and it's full of archival footage, news clips, all of that. Um, so, just talk to me a little more about that editing process, and also I'm interested in like the licensing and legal side of all of those clips. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like when you're making a documentary film about a topic like this or anything um, that, you know, is popular or, you know, could be found in the news, then really there's no lack of footage. Like the whole entire, you know, <laughs> everything could be footage. Um, mm-hmm. And and yeah. I found that in order to tell this story, like there was a lot that I needed from the news. You know, the, the film goes into the history of violence in the post office. So obviously I need, um, you know, archival newsreel footage of these um, murder-suicides that happened um, throughout the 80s and 90s um, to build a montage of that. And going all the way back to the postal strike in 1970, um, you know, I needed a lot of stuff to tell that story from, you know, Nixon's speeches to... um, you know, just frontline footage of postal workers on the scenes um, and a lot of the newsreel there. Um, and then, 
you know, going all the way forward till now, corporate propaganda by the Postal Service and, you know, FedEx and, you know, other competitors of the USPS and, you know, Fox News stuff, pundits and whatnot, to just talk about how we've gotten to the point where there are these misconceptions about the post office. I needed to show, you know, where they come from. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, it was a lot to wrangle. You know, a lot of the primary footage, the footage that I shot, I'd go back home from a, you know, footage trip uh, in an interview and, you know, start whittling it down right away and pulling the selects. So, you know, you have Mm -hmm. at least I have like a condensed version of of that stuff, you know, going back to 2008. We really started editorial. So editing of the movie, you know, just happened kind of concurrently throughout the years and you know some sometimes more than others um so so but with all the found footage it's like well how do i use this stuff mm-hmm. um without licensing it all and you know thank goodness we live in a country which has a first amendment right um which is very strong and plays mm-hmm. in the favor of documentary filmmakers very heavily um to use the fair use doctrine which basically um, allows documentary filmmakers to use footage if it's transformative. I'm not going to be, you know, no, there's no, um, you know, illusion that I'm using USPS corporate footage in order to, you know, to sell it as it is. I'm using it to turn it on its head. And so that's where this fair use comes in is that if you're transforming the nature of the footage, then you're allowed to use it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know, I couldn't have I couldn't have been confident in doing that without um, a relationship with the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, and they've really made this film like possible to make because um, the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts in New York hooked us up with a law firm back in twenty. 14 or 15 so they've been with us for the last five years and have done so much pro bono work for us um and initially they you know they're an intellectual property um firm lawyers and so they were not familiar they're not like documentary film lawyers there are lawyers that specialize in fair use for documentary film these weren't them they were really good lawyers and it was a really great firm but they were saying all right well where's the licensing for all this footage and i was saying i started down that road i would call i would like you know call abc or i would look online for how much it was and it was just like there's no way all the footage that yeah, I need mm-hmm. to tell this story, there's absolutely no way that I could make the movie. Those prices are astronomical. It's crazy. Yeah, the prices and even just tracking down, like you'll get no reply. Right. Mm-hmm. I, there's 200 incidents of fair use in the movie. So, you know, maybe that's from like 160 different sources. Yep. So there's no way I would even have the time to track down um, a license from, you know, a, a small fraction of those um, publishers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I didn't have to, you know, that's, that's the great thing. So what I had to do was after talking to a couple other documentary filmmakers, um, there was a, um, a lecture being put on by one of the foremost fair use, um, doctrine lawyers, um, for documentary film. And so I said to my lawyers, Hey, let's go to this. It was taking place at NYU of all places across the street from the dorm I used to live at on Washington square <laughs> East. So, 
I said, you know, let's go. It's like, you know, um, one one weeknight evening. And they were all about it. They came with me, the two lawyers that were working on the film. And from that point on, they've been on board with the fair use thing. And we've gone back and forth. It has to be so detailed. And, you know, it's another completely tedious job of documenting every use. When, what the time in is, how long you're using it for, you know, uh, everything you could possibly like, you know. And then the lawyers have you know, compiled an argument for why each use is. And there are a lot of things that they came back at me and said, no, you can't, you can't do that. And I've had to replace it. Um, so, um, or, or license it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still in that. I'm, I'm still in that right now, actually. Um, so, you know, we're, we're still taking donations. We've done a couple fundraising um, efforts and, you know, we've spent that money on transcripts and a number of other fees that have come up. Um, because it's, you know, just an ultra low budget endeavor. But, um, you know, right now, if you go to the great postal heist.com, there's a, there's a donate button right at the top of that landing page. And it's basically so that we can license the last of this footage that is not fair use, um, so that we can then start to have a, a wider release. Cause so far our release has been online at these film festivals and, um, a couple other platforms online. But, you know, before we can actually, like, make DVDs, put it on iTunes and Amazon and get wider release, there's there's a couple um, T's I have to cross and I's I have to dot. And those are, you know, just it's going to be a little bit of money to Getty and, you know, wherever a couple of these other little things um, come from. So uh, if anybody's listening and they want to see the, the the film in a mailbox near you, um, you know, give give us a dollar or two and we'll we'll put it to good use. Definitely, it's definitely a great cause to donate to. <laughs> um, and that, that's amazing that you know these lawyers are working for free like that and just navigating all of this detail um, to make sure that you know you you're able to use this under fair use. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable how responsive they are. And just when I think about the whole making of this film, how many little things came together to make it possible that we were able to finish it. Like there was no real reason why, you know, so many movies get started and not finished. Um, you know, and and that was a huge one, a resource that we could have never afforded. Um, so, you know, volunteer lawyers for the arts we're we're definitely in their debt and they've been just you know so nice about it too it's never like i'm bothering them you know definitely i feel like you know sometimes you send an email you don't get it back for a while but you know the amount of work that they've put in it's been pretty incredible and they you know they like the film so that that helps yeah that's great Yeah. yeah definitely um you said how like as you were making this there were all these different news cycles and you felt like you were always trying to catch you know the latest or whatever um, when you did release the film, it was a time again when the uh, post office was all over the news. Um, how do you see your film fitting into the political climate, uh, and what statement does it make uh, for the future of the postal service? Well, um, yeah, the the post office obviously with this pandemic um, making mail in voting a huge necessity. Um, the post office has been huge in the news, and Trump had a lot of criticisms to lob at the Postal Service. So he would bring them into the news and, you know, to to his detriment, because it's it's a service that although they are an underdog in a lot of ways, so many people like across across political spectrums. I mean, because there are postal workers, because there's like a half million postal workers there, it's not like they're um 
they have a certain political character to them. They are everyone. You know, there's there's somebody in the film, um, an interview we, when I asked, like, um, you know, what the American public thinks of postal workers. And she said, we are the American public. Right. And, and it's it's really true. And that's why it's not like a Republican or a Democratic, you know, cause. There are Republicans who are, you know, fighting for a public postal service because they live in rural areas and they know how imperative it is for um, those places to be served. Um, so, you know, so it's been, um, you know, so I was saying about Trump, who who is called like the Postal Service a joke and who's, you know, called into question a lot of their practices. And then when they needed this mail-in ballot voting, you know, it's going to be the most rigged election in history. And it's proven not to be. It's proven to be actually a a secure way to vote. And, you know, this uh, election has been, um, you know, distinguished by having a bigger voter turnout than many previous elections. Right. Not only because of the mail-in voting, but also because a lot of the early voting and the absentee voting, a lot of the things that we had to do because— um, it wasn't feasible to ask everyone to show up um, on election mm-hmm. day at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So it, it it's um, you know one 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 thing that that Trump did was he basically installed the governance body of the postal service and the postmaster general, and it's it, he put he put in a big Trump donor. It was it was a totally corrupt move that is not surprising. But here's this big Republican, big Trump donor put into the post, put into the position. And he's also um, was the CEO of a giant postal contractor who is still getting multimillion dollar um, contracts from the Postal Service. So it's a giant conflict of interest. And it it, you know, turned a lot of people on to. Um, what was going on behind the scenes and, you know, shined a lot of light um, from the media's perspective on the Postal Service. So it was great to be able to kind of ride that um, wave of attention and for the timing to be right, because like we finally were finished with the movie and mm-hmm. ready to get it out. And um, we have uh, we got a distributor interested, uh, Cinema Libre Studios, which um, they've done a lot of great social issue films Um outfoxed, uh, vaxxed. They, they do a lot of politically um, incorrect film, you know, just uh, controversial films, right, um, challenging right. films. And so it was great to be under their wing now um, and uh, kind of having them help us um, navigate, you know, this distribution, these distribution waters. That's awesome. They seem like the perfect distributor for you guys. Yeah, yeah. It really worked out wonderfully. So, you know, hoping for that next uh, opportunity to um, right now, the film is available on um, a website called gather.com. We had our premiere there a couple of weeks ago. It's G A T H R.com. And right now the film is available there for rental. We had a nice uh, turnout. Um, I think 500 people registered for our um, premiere um, last month. Wow. That's great. Yeah. It's since been available there for rental. Um, and, you know, to answer your question about the future of it, you know, the film and from the voices of the postal workers and and other people, um, in the film, like the economist, Richard Wolf, you know, my, my biggest question was, what do you do 
in a system where the management has proven to be the thing that's standing in the way from not only a healthy workplace, but an efficient service. Um, Mm -hmm. what What does it mean to do away with bosses? And when you start to talk about that, then even some of the more um, stalwart, you know, labor activists may be afraid of talking about it because, um, you know, they're used to working in a in a field where it's all about like um, lobbying politicians and there's nothing in the political discourse that in America anyway. I mean, it's popular in Germany. It's popular in some South American countries when you're talking about like a worker-led enterprise. In Spain, there's a giant corporation called Mondragon um, that is a, a, it's a co-op, but it's a co-op that is in leading in many industries. Um, And that's Mm -hmm. what we're talking about in the film. I think the Postal Service is, is a great, um, not only example of management gone wrong, but uh, but a great like paradigm for um, how could we move forward in a way where the workers are leading this this enterprise because they already have a democratic body of leadership in their unions, so mm-hmm. you know they know how to have a voice in how they want the organization to be led. Um, and you just don't need, you know, babysitters watching people do stuff so that they can document it and record it. I mean, it, it's, you know, the the film, I try to make it clear through the the voices of the workers in the film that there's like a lot of redundancy and a lot of wasted money, um, you know, going to um, all these levels of executives that are just basically there to, you know, justify their own job. And it's and it's a, and it's an issue that it's hard to fix in one specific industry. So it's just a conversation that I'm I'm excited to introduce into any you know into any discourse because it's a conversation that we're not having. You know, another thing that that um, the film brings up is is the automation, which mm-hmm. has definitely led to a lot of, you know, mail is able to be processed without as many workers as it once was. And that's not a, a thing that's unique to the Postal Service. That's just an economy-wide thing that, like, mechanation is leading to job loss. And so what do we do? You know, there are politicians yeah. that will talk about a universal basic income, but um, you know, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of other ways to do that. And one of the things that Richard Wolf brings up in our film is, <clears throat> well, if you only have half the work to do because machines are doing the work, then what if everybody has the same pay, but they only have to work half time? Um, right, and right. I, I think that that's something that's far in the future because I think that there is a lot of work to be done that people need to do, but, this is kind of a trajectory of technology that's happening now. And we have to think about it a lot further in advance than we are. If we're just going to leave, um, you know, people who aren't, um, you know, executives or tech workers or, you know, using advanced skills, if we're just going to leave them in the dust because their job can be done by a robot, well, is that is that what we're looking forward to? Like just, you know, 
a a world where there's either extreme poverty or just a lot of people who are just you know at the mercy of whatever um philanthropy is going to be given their way or whatever tax dollars are going to be given their way um and they're right. just going to seem like you know victims of the economy yeah, yeah yeah in terms of automation um the film mentions this also but things like fedex ups uh, amazon deliveries new technology like drones which may be able to deliver mail deliver mail um do you think that there is still going to be a need for the the united states postal service and do you think uh, or do you think that the Postal Service will grow and catch up with technology? Um, well, I, yeah, I, I think that there's definitely, you know, it's it's funny, like the idea that th- things that can be done by a robot or by a computer should be um, is highly, you know, questionable to me um, because I think the resources that it takes to maintain things like that are probably a lot more than the person that would be doing the job. Um, and then you lose that interpersonal mm-hmm. connection. And, and we have a world already where people are feeling isolated from one another because, you know, you walk into the bank and they're pointing you towards the ATM rather than like just using the bank teller. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's all these relationships that are being lost. And so I don't know that we're really doing ourselves a service by um, – by you know eliminating jobs um just because a machine can do it however i also don't you know i i don't think that you know there's a reason if if it if there is a way you know it has to be taken on an individual basis if there you know there's no reason why there should be a thousand people in a in a mail sorting facility when you can have a hundred people, but then what happens to those other people? I think it has to be um, an economy-wide kind of decision because there's a lot of you know work to be done outside of that. Um, but now, yeah. So getting back to your question about the postal service, I think you know you're going to need a physical infrastructure there to like deliver things like physical things um, from one place to another. Like right now, everybody's stuck at home and. Um, so, you know, online shopping, you know, getting things that you need online is is necessary. I don't know. Are people going to want like drones flying around and like landing on their doorstep? I think in, in some states they're probably going to get shot down. <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> um, so, you know, there's I think there's something to be said for that person who isn't, you know, who is like a benign presence in the neighborhood. They're not, you know, th- th- it's not a cop. It's not somebody who... Um, you know, is, is, you know, can be, can be looked upon at all as not having your best interests at heart. It's just a postal worker who's there delivering mail. I think there's something to be said for having that, you know, in touch, um, you know, person in your community. Um, and, you know, as far as the future of the postal service, something that the, the film brings up is that they could be doing a lot more that they're not allowed to do because of, um, because of their competitors and, and, and laws that are like basically like strangling their ability to be competitive, you know, like mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. could be offering the same types of services that the UPS store or the FedEx Kinko store is offering, but <clears throat> they're not allowed to, they're like competitively constrained to do that. Um, up until recently, and I'm not sure if like still they can't like deliver beer and wine so that pushes that much more business to private carriers um you know so i think 
as relevant as the Postal Service um, can be is as relevant as they're willing to want to be. And because their leadership has been um, part of the problem of like whittling them down and selling them off, you're not able to really see that vision because that vision doesn't exist at the top. So, yep, mm-hmm. you know, in our in our ideal vision of a postal service that has the interests of both like the large workforce and the citizenry at heart, you're able to offer whatever the, the people need. You know, the postal service was founded to bind the nation together for, you know, the communication, um, for the literary needs and for the business needs of people. And it's a large thing in that it's a, a nationwide infrastructure but it's also a very local thing in that there's a post office, you know, usually five minutes from anyone anywhere, um, you know, in rural areas a, a little bit further. But then you have like the carrier that comes to your door. So there's a way mm-hmm. for a network infrastructure like that to serve the community in a lot more ways. Um, you know, postal banking is another is another you know thing that the film talks about. Um, you know, having a high speed Internet service in a post in a post office. Um, just like a computer kiosk, a place that somebody can go to send emails that can't afford broadband in their home. Um, You know, this all falls into line of what the founder's vision of the Postal Service was, but now it's the 21st century. So what can the Postal Service offer? And when you find out why they aren't allowed to, you realize that it's just, it's just political. It it has nothing to do with their ability to. So, um, you know, I think, with a with a change with like a foundational change in how they operate and who leads them um they could they could kind of be be at the tip of the spear of a new um of a new way forward yeah <clears throat> those are great points and i like what you said about just because a robot can do it doesn't mean it should mm-hmm. uh, i think that human connection is something that's often overlooked uh, for the sake of automation and is really necessary um just for you know our souls yeah yeah, totally. And it seems like, you know, we're we're losing that in a lot of ways. And um, yeah, definitely. You know, it, it, now even in, in, in film, like to, to bring it back, it's uh, mm-hmm. there used to be, you know, editing rooms used to have a lot more people in them when we were editing on film. And now it's it's a solitary art. Um, right. So, you know, I think so the thing that I hope for in the movie and that I I believe and, you know, from reactions I've gotten is that it's not just about the Postal Service. I think a lot of people will see these um, tendencies playing out in their own businesses and their own communities. Um, You know, this lack of this impersonalness that's kind of um, taking over with. with, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right, Jay, what's what's next for you? Do you have any new projects on the horizon? Um, I, I don't at the moment. Uh, I am, uh, you know, this this was a big one. So, you know, I'm working for a I'm working for, a, uh, I'm, I'm working for a, a do good institution. So I'm kind of I'm, I'm happy about that. Um, I'm I'm working for a company that uh, it's a holistic uh, learning center um, called Omega Institute. And uh <laughs> uh, I know it well, <laughs> which you know well, and I I thank you for letting me bring you along on that on that trip too, um, because uh, you know there's a lot of soulless jobs that one could have in this industry, and so it feels good to be um, 
you know, working for a company like that and, you know, having having the family now, it's hard to imagine diving into a, another passion project. That's mm-hmm, why, mm-hmm. Um, you know, right now I see the job as trying to get this film out. And, you know, I've done the job of making the film and, you know, wrapping it up, getting a distributor and getting some interest. And so now I just want to try and use it as best as I can as a, as a tool, as an educational tool, as an organizing tool. Um, and you know, that's my, that's my artistic focus. Um, you know, love to, love to make a, uh, a romantic comedy one day, an experimental romantic comedy. (laughs) (laughs) That that was the next question I was going to ask you is, uh, do you want to continue making documentaries or do you have any desire to direct, uh, like a fictional narrative, a comedy, something like that at some point? I think that would be great. Yeah. I, I think, that would be really um, a nice, refreshing thing to do is to is to direct something fictional. Um, I've always been interested in writing. I've always been interested in the absurd and the surreal. Um, and I think it allows our brains and our minds to um, consider reality in a in a in a very in a, with a new perspective in a necessary way. So you know, mm-hmm. if we're if we're constantly mired in in reality and nonfiction. I think we can we can lose a lot of that perspective, which is which is definitely necessary. So it would be a nice change of pace to uh, to do something like that. So definitely, yeah, yeah. And that's a great point. Mm-hmm. All right, well, I'm looking forward to seeing whatever is next from you: uh, new stories, documentaries, new music. Yeah, appreciate um, it. Thanks. I want to congratulate you again on the film. Um, I'm happy to see that it's getting recognition and that you're managing to to screen it, even. Uh, Though COVID's going on and, you know, physical uh, screenings aren't happening. Yeah. You know, I, I, I look forward to the end of this whole cycle when we could all get together, you know, in a in a theater and watch it. Um, but I was I was luckily able to do that because we we did finish the movie beforehand. And, um, you know, the 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 great thing about this, uh, you know, the, the online thing is that I, I have been able to show it to a lot more people than I would have um, in a theater, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we've had a lot of, um, a lot of people come to these virtual screenings, so it's been good. That's awesome. Well, it's a big achievement and you deserve it. The, the film is beautiful and you've put a ton of work into it. So congratulations again. <laughs> thanks, Granel. Thanks for, you know, it's been great talking to you and you know, you're, you're a real talent too. And I look forward to all the stuff that's coming out, um, in your end and, you know, good luck with this podcast because I've, I've heard a, a number of the episodes and, uh, it's really thoughtful um, and you come at it with a really thoughtful um, attitude and you have a lot of interesting uh, subjects on here. So um, awesome. Well, thanks for the support. You know, it's always uh, nice to hear. And I think before we sign off here, uh, just remind people how they can see the film. I'm also going to link the film down below so you can find it that way. Um, but if you want to just shout out the, uh, the website again. Sure. Um, right now it's available on gather.com G A T H R.com. Um, and, uh, yeah, like on the splash on the landing page, you have to kind of scroll down and go to load more films to get to ours. But I think you could just search for the Great Postal Heist Gather, and you'll find it. Also, you could go to our website, thegreatpostalheist.com, and we'll link you out to Gather um, to rent it. Um, I think it's available for four ninety nine. And um, yeah, please go check it out and send us a um, send us an email at uh, at thegreatpostalheist.com. Um, let us know what you thought about it. You know, we're really trying to like organize bigger screenings. So if there are labor activists or progressive organizations that want to, um, you know, use it as an organizing tool, you know, get in touch. That's that's our, our main goal at the moment. All right. Awesome, Jay. Thanks so much for sitting down tonight. Thank you, Granel. All right. Talk to you soon. Talk to you, buddy.